So thank you for inviting us into this really beautiful space. What a beautiful place to practice. And thank you for your practice. I'm uh, always uh, strengthened and inspired to sit with groups of people, lovers. You're lovers, whether you know it or not. And there's something even in the in the position um, that speaks of that kind of dedication. And besides that, it's just such a great thing to stop and uh, pause, to be with pause, to have composure. Um, so I, I relate to that on a level of um, feeling sentience and having a wonderful place like this where uh, we don't have mind over sentience, but sentience serving the mind. And of course, we live in a world that has that a little bit turned around. So thank you for creating this space and inviting us in it. So my name is uh, Jacques Verdun. I'm the uh, founder of the Inside Prison Project. And to my right is Antonio Stinson, one of the uh, former consumers of correctional services. <laughs> and uh, to my left, uh, Philip, who um, also spent a good amount of time uh, on the inside of San Quentin. And so uh, we talked about how shall we do this, there's three of us, right? And um, we thought I would try to create a little bit of context, talk a little bit of what we do inside the prison and, and outside now. And then um, um, have each of the gentlemen next to me speak and do some question and answer. So uh, it's, it's such an act of imagination to... I think what happens on that first building across the Richmond Bridge to the left, that we pass and pass and pass and don't really know. I didn't either. So we thought it'd be good to um, make some room for inquiry and have some dialogue. So the Inside Prison Project started about 14 years ago. Uh, it was Jack Cornfield who made a call to the community to see if we could do something for the prisons in the Bay Area. And a good many people responded. And uh, make a long story short, I was the only monkey left on the fence uh, after a while. And my uh, um, interest was really to get into San Quentin, because I felt that is really the prison that is part of our community. And, and uh, at the time, it was about as hard to get in as it is to get out. But uh, that's changed. That's changed. Um, the project grew from a modest uh, offering into quite a robust project that offers 20 classes a week in there. serves about 300 men. And uh, uh, one of the programs is in several other prisons as well. 
and the State Department of, of all people, I think an intern found us on the internet, uh, hired us uh, two years ago to travel abroad and consult with uh, governments in Latin America, uh, particularly on uh, working with gangs. Because gangs started, the Latin American gangs really started in American prisons. It's, it's one of our exports. And so um, um, that's uh, a little bit about the project. It focuses on um, behavioral rehabilitation. And, and with that, within that, we have a niche uh, where there's uh, four aspects of what we do. One is um, a emotional literacy program. It offers a group process on how to deal with overwhelming emotion. Um, another program uh, deals with the uh, victim-offender dialogues. We, we hold dialogues between victim and offenders. And uh, there's quite a lengthy process in preparing both parties. Within the prison, they are surrogate victims, but the crimes are related, and they're severe crimes, murder, kidnap, rape, that kind of thing. And uh, um, the third leg on that chair is a violence prevention program. When, when we came to the prison, there was no such thing. It's kind of interesting. You have five and a half thousand people in a prison. You have no violence prevention program, right? So we started one, and uh, um, the men learn uh, that the number one rule in this universe is to do no harm. But it goes quite a bit beyond that, too. We do a lot of work with shame, releasing shame, and holding it as, um, at times, we radically forget who we are, don't we? Sometimes that can have big consequences. And in a sense, we're here to remind each other of who we really are, or even more courageously, ask the question, who am I? Right? So uh, that happens in the, uh, in the violence prevention class. And then lastly, there's an aspect called, uh, uh, it's a somatic piece around yoga and meditation that... Um, really offers a deeper embodiment and a way to make the insight operational into a behavior. So ideally, prisoners participate in all four aspects, and we found that when they do, uh, the results are, are really, really encouraging. Um, so that's the, the project. Uh, there's a lot of good stories how naive we are when we started, um, being rather green and not knowing the environment. We thought, you know, offer meditation. People have time. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good deal. Um, but that's, you know, one of the misperceptions. Guys are actually quite busy in there, you know, with a variety of things. And it's not as conducive either as this space or Spirit Rock uh, in, in, in San Quentin. So uh, we sort of dropped that idea rather quickly and said, you know, w w let's ask what's needed here and serve that way. 
and uh, involve the men as much as we can so that uh, it becomes theirs. Thinking that whatever ideology you bring to it, Buddhist included, it can't be as strong as, as the man feeling, no, this is my program. Right? When you don't have anything, uh, that might matter. So build community, in other words. Um, so um, that said, there is a, a pretty strong underpinning of, of mindfulness. Not so much as a religious expression, but, but more as a tool. And for those who want to, more than that. Um, and we've found language and, and, and application for some of the, the Buddhist principles to uh, work with a um, largely uh, minority uh, uh, incarcerated population. And we're beginning to write it down. I'm so busy doing it, it's not so easy to write it down. Uh, for example, when we talk about um, breathing and, and the role of breath as a regulator, um, we talk about inspiration as meaning inspiriting, literally, right? So you look at the word and expiration, outspiriting. <coughs> so uh, paying attention to the movement of inspiriting and outspiriting, and sitting in the portal of those two movements uh, wisens you. That's the idea. To notice the movement of the spirit as it enters and passes through has its own language. And can you stop long enough to be spoken to that way? Um, <coughs> I had a young man at some point say, I don't know about that, man. That sounded kind of like a cult thing to me. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, where were you before we had this conversation? He said, I was in county jail. I said, okay, and, and then? He said, I was in the courtroom. I said, ah. He said, there's a little place in the courtroom, isn't it? It's called the witness stand. People go stand in it, they get your story wrong, and here you are. Hell yeah, they got my story wrong, Woody. I said, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. That might be true. They might get your story wrong. But what are you doing in giving up your ability to witness your experience? Right? So that other people go stand there and do it for you. So can you learn to do the push-ups, just like you buff out on the yard, to build that witness? Because it's here to serve you. And he's like, oh, okay. And by the seat of his pants, I had in mind. But, but, but he, he's starting to get interested. So, those are some examples of, of how we're working and languaging and experimenting and making mistakes and, um, with the principles. Another uh, modality we have is, is about what we call sitting in the fire, which is uh, an activity that we all frequently asked to, uh, to participate in, or, or, or sometimes not asked, but forced, thrown in, right? Um, 
that deals with uh, how do you deal with intense emotions? And can you learn to sit in the fire and burn clean and leave ashes? And realize you know, very few of us do that alone. Or do you need to avoid that pain because you don't like it or you don't know how to deal with it and cause secondary pain, karmic pain, as a result of not knowing how to deal? And this is often you know, sort of the prison national anthem is two words. It's effort. Right? Often what people say before they relapse. I don't care. Nobody cares. They don't care. F it, or I can't take it anymore. Which, when you unpack it, often has one of two statements in it. One being, I won't take it anymore, be a little more honest. Or two, I don't know how. I don't know how to deal with this. And um, in that case, you know, the classes are a perfect place to ask for help. Yeah. yeah, thank you for letting me know. You can turn it up. You know, in that case, the classes are, are a perfect place to ask that question. Um, you know, can, can I get some help with that? Um, and this, the, the, act, the practice of sitting in the fire really relates to... Uh, understanding that the cause and the origin of this feeling lies within me. The cause and the origin of this feeling, this fear, this grief, lies within me. And so, um, that's an important part of the practice. To understand that it's not circumstance, but that it's my stance. And uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, being part of a significant piece of mortal coil, right, working in San Quentin, um, that seems to be sort of what's dangled as a, as a teaching, that maybe the whole thing, the, the human journey, uh, is set up for us to learn that uh, none of it is circumstance, right? It's all what we do with it. And um, I think uh, if I brought this, um, Victor Frankl said something uh, very uh, apropos about that. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So this last of the human freedoms is somewhat expressed in, in the slogan on our stationery that says, uh, leaving prison, dot, 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 before you get out. And um, it has a lot to do with um, uh, 
understanding gratefulness, allowing the perspective that every person, every situation is a teacher, and that this moment is perfect. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But if it's all there is, which we uh, say that, that that's so, um, that is perfect. Um, I just wanted to sample a little bit of, of uh, kind of uh, some of the ways that we go to work there. Um, the good news is that um, some of the men, uh, particularly the, the two next to me here, uh, have come out and uh, started giving back to their community. And we've built an initiative called Inside Out as, uh, as a means to support that, which is too good a story to be true, not to support it. And so uh, Inside Out are uh, change agents that uh, learn what they've uh, implemented on one side of the pipeline, namely prison, and have it serve on the other side of the pipeline with youth in schools and youth centers, mainly Richmond and Oakland, and uh, try to um, prevent some of this nonsense. Um, so for me, that's I've actually stepped down as the director in order to be able to witness that and help run it because it's it's a remarkable thing to see these men work with young uh, youngsters, mostly boys, um, and use what they have learned and have the respect that us squares uh, don't always get from these kids. And uh, and you know to see the hardened man, the hardened results of, of those interactions not happening for so many years, and then now seeing that happen is has been very fulfilling for me. Um, we're in negotiations with a group in San Francisco to work with a group of boys that have been trafficked, sex trafficked, and uh, my heart sort of sunk when I even thought about that notion, but I'm also uh, inspired to um, expose these kids to this type of wisdom through these men. So um, I'd love to uh, give them a chance to talk and uh, have some dialogue with you. Hello, my name is Antonio Stinson. 1971, I started my criminal career. At the age of eight, I went to juvenile hall for stealing a minibike. I'm almost 50 years old now. For the last five years, I've been doing something different with my life, giving back to my community. My community is wherever I'm at at whatever time I'm there. I'm here right now inside your community and I appreciate you for allowing me to be there. On July the 23rd, uh, maybe most of you had a really great day that day. 
It was a bad day for me. It was the third anniversary of my son's murder. My junior, my little Tony. I was in prison the day he was murdered. No sympathy, just straight to the juggler. Hey, they want you in the office. Go up to the sergeant's desk and see what's going on. And as calmly as I'm talking to you is how they told me. Your son was murdered. Your ex-wife's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. When Jacques says sitting in the fire, I truly know what that means. But it's because the programs that were already in place in San Quentin that I had been a part of for almost a year helped me to get through one of the roughest times of my life. Helped me to understand that no matter what goes on in my life, it's not about me. It's about my community and how strong I can make it. Had someone been there for me, maybe I wouldn't have traveled that road. I've learned so much from Inside Prison Project. Sitting in the fire, Jock mentioned earlier that sometimes we have issues that we don't want to deal with. We say we can't take it anymore. We choose not to deal with it. But in reality, when you deal with it, it makes life a whole lot better. Sometimes it's an insurmountable pain that you have to go through. But once you go through it, you go, wow, I can get through anything. Nothing, nothing can compare to some of the things we go through in prison. Young man asked me if I wanted a pillow to sit on. I said, I'm comfortable, thank you. In prison, there are no pillows to sit on. Steel and concrete. Everything's bolted down to something. So it's a pleasure to just have a joy of sitting somewhere. There is a cushion, or there is carpet on the floor, or there is a picture on the wall, or there is a television you can watch. You're not trapped in a small six-by-nine cell with another man 23 hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes you're there, and you wonder how you can deal with it, how your mind won't snap. When I found Inside Prison Project, I understood a whole lot of things, and the one thing that I really, really got out of all of this is as long as I continue to deal with those issues that arise, pains, the doubts, the fears, as long as I continue to deal with those right away, take a pause, breathe, and just reflect on what's going on in me. What am I feeling? And why am I feeling this way? And is it true? Then I can give that back to someone else. Thank you. was fine until I had to strap this mic on. <laughs> now I'm nervous. Um, my name is Philip, and first of all, I want to thank you all for inviting us here to your space. Um, it feels good to sit and um, just kind of let everything go. Uh, I've had somewhat of a hectic week, including today. And um, one of the most important things I learned was Jacques and Heidi.
Jock and IPP was to take a breath. <clears throat> when things, you know, when you can feel that stress level raising. So I did that a lot today. It took me about an hour to get over the Bay Bridge when I came over here earlier to go to the youth center. <sighs> and so I found myself taking a lot of breaths. Um, there was a turn in my life that was inevitable because this, I was 27 years old and it was inevitable because I stuffed everything down like a lot of men do. Um, just stresses, childhood struggles, uh, you know, just everything going on. Didn't talk to anybody, didn't, didn't try to have an outlet for it. And, um, it came to a point to where a really scary situation was presented to me, and um, I ended up killing a man. His name was Charlie, and I didn't have to do that. And it's always important for me to bring Charlie's name into this kind of stuff that I do working with the youngsters, um, speaking to people who are kind enough to listen. Uh, it's important for me to bring Charlie in um, because his life was ended prematurely by my hands. And something good has to come of that. That don't just go away. That can't just go away. So I mentioned his name and, and um, a lot of the stuff that I do and that I've been doing almost the whole time I was in prison was partly because it was things I realized I needed to do, figure myself out, how did I get from A to Z, uh, from an innocent child to somebody who killed somebody, um, and also uh, to honor Charlie, to do something um, so that wasn't, his life ending wasn't a complete waste. Uh, I just came from working with some at-risk youth. Jacques had to leave early to get here. And uh, we was talking about the point of imminent danger or fatal peril when you're just ready to do something it's not going to be a good thing. You know, you're at that point. Of, ah. And um, you know, so I got some of their stories of what this week has caused them to get to that point. Of, ah. And uh, were they able to stop it there? Because we've been talking about and working with them for a little while about this. And a couple of them had some pretty good examples of being able to catch that moment and not blast off, not explode, and just hold it and realize that they're not in danger and that, you know, and that this can pass without any, with, within a win-win situation. Um, and so then I, I had them do an exercise where, you know, you tighten up and, you know, make them think, I had them ask them to think of something that really upset them. Um, 
and get in that feeling and tighten it up. And uh, why is this happening? What's going on? And I had him do the exercise. I had him do it with me, uh, and then realize, okay, my life's not in danger. Um, I don't have to react to this. I can, I can, I can let this moment go by without reacting, and I can relax my body and take a breath and realize that that that's a choice that I have. And so we did that little exercise, and it was really, you know, a few of these youngsters. You know, it's kind of hard to get them to do something like that because they're, you know, conscious of who's looking at them and what they're thinking. But they all did it, and and uh, it was it was a good moment. We're 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 building a rapport. Uh, me and Jacques and Pat, uh, another man that couldn't make it tonight because he's sick. Uh, we're building a rapport with these youngsters so that we can start working with them in the deeper work and help them to uh, um, make different decisions and respond to things differently. And like I always tell them, you know, it's not teacher-student. It's, it's even. We sit in a circle, and everybody's learning. I'm learning just as much as they're learning, and I really am. And so I think that's important to do. Um, I spent 20 years in prison for my crime, and I finally was able to work my way out by, number one, uh, doing the right thing in prison, actually rehabilitating and and getting involved with some really important and really moving, really life-changing programs, mostly IPP, a few others. Um, and I've been out for almost two years. And when I got out, I realized that there was a hole. It's like when you break up with someone, and you don't want to break up, and it's like a hole in your gut. That's what it was like, because I, was, I went from going to eight programs a week, one or two every single day, um, for a couple hours, a couple of them were all day working with the kids that they brought into San Quentin. Not scared straight where you scream and holler at them, but actually where you find out what's below whatever they're doing, you know, what, what's their pain. Um, and I got out and I realized, man, I'm not sitting in these circles anymore and I'm not doing my work. You know, this is important to me. And so I found circles, and I, you know, I didn't really have to find a lot. I got a lot of phone calls from a lot of these people that I've known for the last 15 years. I was at San Quentin for 15. I was at five, five years. I was at some other prisons. Uh, they don't have, don't have hardly anything as far as rehabilitation. Um, and so, luckily, because of the the friendships and the and the, the people that I involved myself with throughout all them years. Uh, I didn't have to look very hard. I was getting phone calls. Hey, can you come talk to these kids? Hey, can you, you want to join our group? Hey, you want to do this? You want to do that? So I was back in them circles again. It's so important to be able to um, just talk about whatever, you know, what's going on and hear other people talk about their stuff and realize, you know, you're not one against the world and, you know, there's all kinds of struggles and there's all kinds of, of answers to how to work through them struggles. And a couple of the struggles that are going on right now, I realized, you know, I've known this for a while, and um, the learning never stops. It's, it's happening right now. Um, that's what life is. It's, it's you're, you're a teacher and you're a learner. It's equal, it seems. Um, but I was thinking about this the last couple of days. There's a couple of really big struggles that, that I'm going through. 
uh, one is my mom like just disowning me um, from out of the blue. Just really can't figure out why. And I've talked to a lot of people about it that know her and that know me. And um, it's just something that um, I'm not able to do anything about. Um, you know, I, I'm doing what I can, but it's not a whole lot because she just doesn't want to interact or talk or write or, or, or have a mediator or anything. Uh, and it, like I say, it came out of the blue. You know, I'm not quite sure what, why. Uh, the other thing that I'm struggling with is I have two sons. They're 30 and 26 years old. And they're both in prison. And this is the third time for both of them. They've, they started, the first time they was in prison, they was 19, 20 years old. Uh, another thing that I can't do a whole lot about, I can't go visit them because I'm on par- parole. And so it's not allowed. It's not allowed for a dad to go visit his son to try to, you know, support him, to try to bring positive things to him. Uh, that's part of our wacky prison system. It, that's not allowed. Um, so what I've realized is, and I've realized it in different ways, but one of the, one of the things that I was thinking about the last few days is that it's important not to push that away, not to push that, that swirl inside me, that, you know, that pain, that, that, that anger, that wishful thinking. Uh, because a lot of things, a lot of smaller struggles that I go through, that people go through, they kind of go through you. You know, you kind of, you kind of feel the pain of them. You, feel, you know, you, you, you kind of, they kind of, they're with you and they kind of flow through and then they get better and better things, you know. They, 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 these are a couple of things that are just staying right here and swirling in me because they're ongoing and because they're so important to me. Uh, again, I, I'm finally getting to what I realized about this is it's important for me to embrace that, to embrace that pain, to embrace that, that, um, that uh, confusion, that struggle inside me, to embrace it and to love it like a child because it's a part of what's going on with me. It's something that, that I'm not supposed to push away. It's something I'm supposed to feel and live my life, of course, but something that I'm supposed to be aware of and feel and embrace and hold uh, a different way of dealing with things than I used to deal with things 20 years ago. Um, I used to just shove them away and, you know, so, for whatever reason, I thought that I'd share that. Um, so the struggle goes on. Um, the challenge, the the the, the wondering, the the confusion, the hurt, the the you know, just all that goes on. Um, but it's like it's like uh, Byron Katie says, uh, a wonderful woman that Jacques brought into San Quentin. Uh, loving what is, you know, you have, you don't have to, but I think that it's important to love what is because you can't change what is. So what do you do with it if you if you can't change it? Um, so thank you all for listening.
Um, first, I want to say thank you so much for coming, and I have tremendous respect for all of you and the work you're doing. Um, I had two kind of related questions. Just wanted to get an idea of um, how much of the prison population participates in the programs, I'm speaking of the inmates, but also I was wondering if the prison guards, if you tried to work with them and if they participate in any of the you know, prison administration. program yard, there are approximately a thousand men on the yard, and as you heard Jock say earlier, only 300 or so participate. There are 7,300 men or so at San Quentin with movement pass. They are not involved in most of the current programs in place. Uh, San Quentin is only one of 33 prisons that is not counting the ranches, fire camps, the CCFs. So you're looking at a population of almost 200,000 men and women and basically 300 people are getting this right now. Less than 1%. Yeah, unfortunately the first cuts that were made by the governor uh, were in uh, whatever little bit of education, drug programming, and vocational programming there was in prisons. Not that we were getting any of that money. Um, but uh, there were 40 teachers in San Quentin, paid by the state, doing GED-type work. There's eight left. And um, in these other prisons, there's nothing going on. So uh, these are what you call expensive savings. 95% of these men come out to be somebody's neighbor. How do you want them? Right? It's, it's uh, you know, the kind of interesting thing for us right now is, is we don't have to make our humanitarian point. We can just say, um, hey, any uh, company uh, you know, that was owned by shareholders that had a 70% failure rate, which is the percentage of men coming back within 18 months, would be thrown out and, uh, and, and asked for an overhaul. So now that there's no money, uh, I mean, I had this interesting experience last week of, um, or a few weeks back of, in, in within two days having sat down with the police chief in Oakland, the superintendent, and, uh, and the youth center. And the, the chief of police had to let go of 80 cops the superintendent in Oakland had to save $120 million. Cut is the real word. The, uh, one of the kids at the shelter, uh, his group home was no longer funded. He, he was at 15 in the homeless shelter. And I went to prison and there were 20 new guards hired. Yeah. Can everybody hear me right now? Oh, okay. I just um, to address your question about the officers, uh, the correctional officers, 
I found out a few years ago that they can't come to the prison off duty, not getting paid, and sit in on a group. Um, it's a, their union won't allow them to do it. So even if they wanted to, which a few of them have, have uh, expressed that they're interested in the group, they think it's good work, and they wish they could come and sit in, but they can't because their union won't let them come off duty into the prison and sit down in a room in these groups. Uh, so another crazy rule in CDC. I don't know if Dave, if you've ever tried doing a group. Oh, it's, it's interesting. I actually was at headquarters last week uh, talking about this, right? Because what's needed is a culture change, not just you know some money here or there or a program here or there. So if you have fifty six thousand employees, that's where you would start. <clears throat> so we'll see. I don't know yet. Um, how are people? Um told about the service and, and how do they find their way into the program? And also, if there were more people who were interested, I don't know if there are more people, but can you accommodate more than the 300 that are currently being served? Um, well, I have the first part of the question answered by the gentleman here. But yes, we could if we had, we have plenty of waiting lists. So if, if we had more capacity, more Resources we could serve more people. So, and how uh, how do people find their way uh, into the yeah, program? Yeah, how did you find out? Actually, from reception center. During my stay, everyone stays in the reception center for anywhere from thirty days to six months before they're shipped off to the prison that they're going to be living at. Um, while there, the. Uh, Help me here, Phil. The committee, ICC. Yeah, uh, ICC classification committee. They they actually told me about the program down there, and they gave me a choice: either be shipped off again, or we'll let you go down there. So if you join the program, so I went down there just so I can go to Camp Snoopy for a while and not have to worry about anything violent happening. And while I was there, a lot of guys that were in my barracks, they told me about the program, and they encouraged me to actually go. So I went reluctantly the first time, and um, wow, a whole lot of things changed in three days for me. And I have 19 certificates from those classes. So a whole lot of things changed for me. Next question. They also... Uh also, it's uh, most of how people get involved in these programs is just word of mouth. It's just us guys that's been in it say, hey, hey, this is a good program. I think you'd really enjoy it. You know, come check it out. And we, uh, it, it's uh, one of us that are involved in the program in a, in a long-term type of way usually keep a list. We usually do the, the inside coordination of, of the groups. We keep a list. We get a sign-up sheet. We have a waiting list. We have let them know the dates and the times. We make flyers up and put them in the block. But most of it's word of mouth and just talking about the experience of the group uh, without 
breaking any confidentiality and talking about who said what and that kind of thing, but just saying, you know, this is this, this is an important group, and we work with victims, or or, or we work on our anger, or, or you know, or or, um, or we have you know do these other things, and here's what it's about, and you know, I think it, I think you'd really get something out of this. I think it'd be really important for you. And uh, um, a lot of times you're able to get guys that are on the fence, that are like want to hang with the fellas, but also you know want to you know want to kind of check out these groups, and you can you can kind of pull them in. So that's uh, for the most part, that's how a lot of people end up coming to these groups is us just going out there and spreading the word. Um, yes, um, over here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly important. And I'm just wondering what um, what's needed to grow your program. Is it money? Is it um, uh, volunteers? Are there um, is there anything we could do to to help? Um, and also like uh, development, you know, grants and that sort of thing, lobbying. Love, love that question. Uh, yeah, you answered it yourself. <laughs> I actually <laughs> gave him. I gave him five bucks if he would ask it. <laughs> uh, no, no, thank you, thank you. Um, we, uh, yeah, the the hardest struggle right now for us is finances because we're we're on the bottom of the list, right? I mean, the shelter down the block, your kids' school, but you know, male adult defenders. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> not so. So uh, it's a miracle we exist, really. And and the reason we exist is is people who have seen it uh, just become supporters and stick with us. So so it's it. The project has become this vehicle of of compassion and people who enjoy each other and support one another like that. So finances is big right now because. Uh, we just lost our major grant. So, um, the volunteerism. We hope if if we get a, a re-entry grant, we actually call it new entry instead of re-entry. <laughs> um, um, then we need about fifteen to twenty volunteers, and we'll know in October. Uh, we're going to set up um, COSAs, circles of support and accountability, where the offender picks a group of people. Um, that could involve a family member, a clergy member, uh, a friend, anybody that is meaningful to that person. And then we need volunteers to uh, run these groups. So yes and yes to your question. Hi. Thanks for coming and talking to us tonight. It's been really fascinating. Um, Is anyone working with women and... Um, if so, who and where, and and then when a person volunteers, um, uh, is there any training that we would get, and what's the uh, average commitment, time commitment over what kind of period of time? Uh, yes, there are people working with women. It's a little easier uh, to find access in women's prison, and our new ED, Jenny, uh, I think her last name. Though. Blanken. Curtis. Jenny Curtis. Curtis. Thank yeah, you. I forgot it too. Can, can see why I study mindfulness. Um, 
uh, has worked with women for 15 years and, and um, could readily point you the way. Uh, I, the length of commitment for volunteers is hard to say right now because we're really waiting for the green light in October. Um, so I can't quite answer that at this point. Um, I also want to thank you for your work um, and how important it is to everyone. My question is about at-risk youth. How do you um, get them involved and at what ages and through what kind of mechanism? Uh, and I'm speaking from the perspective of a person who knows an at-risk youth who's 10 going on 11 and has concerns about what might happen. Um, the age, I'm not sure um, if there's an age requirement. Uh, the thing about at-risk youth, or really any youth, is they want—they usually want to get out of whatever situation they're in. They're not going to say that, but they want they don't want to be gang members. They don't want to be mixed up with drugs. They don't want to be, you know, skipping school. They don't—they don't—they don't really want that. They're just in that peer pressure type of a atmosphere and um, uh, I've, I've been working with that youth for 15 years and they all you have to do is help them figure out how they can get out of whatever situation they're in because um, it, it, they're all different they're all different type of things whether it's the family it's the neighborhood it's the drugs it's the you know the violence whatever um, they just they just want you to kind of steer them, steer, you know, um, steer the way that they can get out of the whatever mess they is, the little steps that they got to take to get further and further away from whatever it is they're in. And they have the answers. All you have to do is help them figure the answers out. Because I'm never one to tell, okay, do this, do this, do that, and everything will be just fine and dandy. Uh, I, I like to have them, you know, well, what do you think? How do you think? What do you think you can do differently? You know, just a small thing that would change the situation you're in, and and they have the answers, and they, you know, 99% of them want to get out. They want a way out of the mess that they're in. They're just they're acting like, you know, that that's the place to be and the thing to be doing, but that's not what they're feeling in their heart. They want they want they want to go to school. They want to get good grades. They want to you know uh, do good in their family. They want to you know. Uh, uh, have friends that aren't ripping and robbing and, and, and doing dope. They want all that. They really do want that. They just don't know how to do it because they're kids. They they don't, you know, they just need some steering. So I'm not sure if that, did that answer? Okay, well, what, what, what's specific? How, how does a kid like that come to find somebody like you? Ah, that's uh, us grown-ups have to steer them into that direction, you know, and, um, because we don't do a whole lot of commercials on TV, you know, <laughs> during during cartoons or you know during uh, video games. So uh, it, that's where us parents have to come into play. And maybe it's not their parent, the actual parent. A lot of times it isn't, but somebody knows that child that needs some help, and then they need to be proactive and find something in you know something that would work for that child after school, whatever. 
you've said that you need money and um, someone should find a group like yours, but you haven't given us any specifics. Like if we want to give money besides throwing money in the basket today, got an internet site, got an address, we need more specifics. Great. <laughs> um, the internet site is uh, is in insideprisonproject.org, one word. And uh, there's a, a link on the site that you could donate. Um, I'd stay as long as I need to tonight to talk to anybody who has a referral or has an idea or has the capacity. And uh, I would also like to say, you know, if you're serious in supporting it or, or, or in other ways feel drawn to this, um, we have uh, abilities for you to come and sit in on a class. And we kind of monitor it so that we don't flood the classes. But we serve on both sides of the, of the wall. And uh, the neat thing is, you know, in doing prison work or, or even in just visiting is a lot of what we're in denial of as a society, a lot of our shadow is kept on, you know, it's closed out. It's, it's not visible to us that way. And so when you go in and you begin to interact with that, uh, it, it begins to complete you. I mean, you know, in ways that very few things can because you're interacting with that psychic denial and shadow. And um, it's a fascinating experience, you know, because most of our perception of prison is so fear-based, right? I mean, there's whole channels now, I understand, where you can sit next to the cop in the car and, you know, apprehend people left and right. But there's not nothing on... Um, you know, somebody positively looking and struggling to transform his life. And uh, particularly for men, I sort of want to put a plug in, I thought of put, putting a bumper sticker together that says, Save the Males. Because <laughs> right? the, the, there isn't much compassion for an adult male that makes a mistake. We are somehow the problem of all of it. And, and, uh, Making a plug for that, you know. We make mistakes, and and please, you know, give us a chance to put it right. Would you be willing to uh, say your program name and who to write a check to? Yes. <laughs> this is great. Got a bunch of gorillas in the audience. <laughs> um, so the, uh, uh, the project is called Insight Prison Project. As in having an insight, yes. And... Um, it's at 805 Fort Street in San Rafael, 94901. And the website is uh, org, and it has a, a link that you can donate. And all three of us will give you our best behavior and smiles in the back of the room uh, should you want to support. And, and also if you, you know, want to come in 
and and uh, as a kind of act of civic engagement, educate yourself, right? Because the project acts as a vehicle for that. You know, if if a community member doesn't live by the agreements that we've made, then we play a role as citizens in holding up our values rather than abdicating that to, you know, the wealthiest special interest lobby in the state, which is the Correctional Officers Union. Um, so I, w- I want to make a plea for that too. There's not a lot of calls for activisms, activism towards prison work, but it's a very rich place, as you, as you well know, as you well know. Thank you. Also on the website, there's a newsletter that comes out monthly. It's very informative. It'll give you a lot of information on what's going on with Insight Prison Project now, uh, some of the projects that are up and coming, some of the trainings that they'll be holding, some of the seminars that they'll be holding, uh, ways that you can help out. I heard a lot of volunteerism in here tonight. I appreciate that very much. But get connected with Insight Prison Project's webpage, and you can get that newsletter. And if you're not ready now, soon. Okay, thank you for staying in touch. I think we have uh, time for one more question. Can you hear me? Um, So I live in North Oakland, and recently there was a gang injunction that was put into place. And um, some people on my street were affected, and, um, you know, kids that used to hang out on their stoop don't hang out on their stoop anymore. And um, I was just wondering, um, I live in a neighborhood where I've I've really seen children that are directly affected by the fact that they don't get a lot of attention except, um, you know, by the police um, in terms of from the community. And um, I was just wondering if you are doing any work with those kids who are affected by that North Oakland gang injunction? Not directly at this point, but we are talking with uh, the new Oakland superintendent, who is a, a pretty exciting person, Tony Smith, who, you know, we sort of sat opposite one another and, I, and, and said to each other something like, isn't it interesting, you know, public school system, prison system, we got to deal with sort of the first entry of the larger social breakdown. Um, And yet, uh, nor the schools nor the prisons are set up to deal with the type of transformation that's needed to address the breakdown. And it was quiet for a moment when we both realized that. (coughs) And and he, as, as, as are we, expressed his commitment <coughs> to do exactly that, is to not just cram data into, you know, stressed out little heads, but to, uh, you know, to take it into a larger context and, and do begin to offer that. Now, in terms of North Oakland, geographically exactly, um, not at this point for us. And, and, and you're right, you know, these injunctions don't help because n- now what? Where are they going to meet? 
I mean, I have mixed feelings about the injunction because it's not like they just, it's not as if nothing was happening. There was a lot of stuff going down and. Sure. Um, yeah. But at this point, I, I work with um, some little girls in my neighborhood. I, I don't really work with them in any kind of formal way, but I hang out with them a lot. And, um, you know, just as an example, this seven-year-old girl told me the other day, <laughs> the other day she was supposed to be looking after another little girl, and that little girl took off or something. Mm -hmm. And so her older brother said, well, you should kick her ass. Or, or, you know, he said something like that to her. And I said, well, did you, uh, did you stand up for yourself? And she said, yeah, I told her I'd punch her in the neck. And I was like, oh, no. What, you know, what do you, right. <laughs> what do you say to that? You know, yeah. I mean, little no, Amari. Yeah, I, 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 these are our children, and this is our culture. Right, right. And, you know, when I, I told her, the only thing I could say was, you know what, Amari, you know, you... You get back what you put out. You know you don't want to do that, especially not to a little girl smaller than you, and um, and you don't you don't want that kind of violence. And she just said, "What's violence?" Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm from North Oakland, also, and in the last three years or so, the gang injunction did do a lot to clean up the neighborhood. Uh, there used to be crackheads on the side of my building behind the garbage cans every night I went to work. I worked the graveyard ship, and uh, now it's every once in a while you'll see one over there, but it also ran a bunch of good guys away from around there also because of their association, so they're guilty by association, you're right. It doesn't really help, but honestly, I like my neighborhood a lot better now, you know, and then the, the thing you said about the little girls, my granddaughter talks like that too, but you have to look at what's going on in their lives. Their parents are in their early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, some of them, and they're still going out to nightclubs. They're still hanging out, listening to rap music and whatever. Not that rap music is a bad influence, but, I mean, I think you can find some different type of music to listen to with your 5-year-old child, your 6-year-old child. You know, every other word is a cuss word or I'm going to do something bad to you song. You know, I work at a halfway house now. I went from prison to being a guard. I was like, Wow. You know, so I mean, if it's happening for me, it, it can happen in our neighborhoods. It could happen in our communities. You know, I appreciate you for speaking up for North Oakland, but it's not just there; it's all over. It's everywhere we go. You just push them from one end of the corner to the next. Yeah. Is is there anything, any other way you can get that little girl's attention, her, her sister? Her sister's attention without hitting or calling her names. Is there another way? Is there a different way that you could get her attention? Because their minds work really well. Mm -hmm. I'd like to end with a, a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, he puts it quite succinctly. He said, if it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who 
is willing to destroy the peace of his own heart.